0: A few, uh, let's see here, how do I say this? Housekeeping notes, is that the right way? Uh, Next week will be our final week of the year. Um, And uh, it will be our final week with this book. So what that means, I know you might feel bad, but uh, Pastor Bruzik and I have agreed that we should probably put this book to rest. No, not because we don't like it. It's it's uh for a variety of reasons. I think it's it's good to change gears in the middle of the year. Or change uh well not gears. I mean we're still gonna have it at the normal time and still talk about Jesus. But um you know, it's for those who do read it, it's sounding very similar every chapter, right? Yeah, okay. So um, Mary Lou, you read my mind. Next week we're going to go out of order and we're going to read Joan of Arc. So if you want to read up on Joan of Arc, mainly because, and I'll say this before Holly comes back, one of my favorite movies ever is The Passion of Joan of Arc. Wow. Filmed in 1928, oh, here she comes. <laughs> That's all you can say. Well, one of my favorite films is uh, The Passion of Joan of Arc. it's a great movie fascinating movie it is a, like i said it's a silent movie silent movie, but it is actually in French with English subtitles so either way, you have to read something oh because the the words the words are in French, but then they do have they have do little english subtitles so um I would really encourage anybody who wants to wa- uh, you know, feel interested, you should watch that movie by next week. The Passion Journal, 1928. Carl Dreyer is the uh, director, famous director in cinema. If you're into, like, if you're kind of entered into Nerdville and want to know a little bit about c- cinematic history, Carl Dreyer, great, great director in early film, influenced many other directors. Great storyteller. Passion of Joan of Arc, you can get it at Netflix. You can also get it at the Wheaton Public Library. No, because uh, it's, it's too long. Although, don't tempt me. We could do that. One of the great things about the Passion of Joan of Arc is how uh, the faces. The faces are very important to Joan of Arc. Ali has a great rendition of the actress. Well, actually, I think we're going to watch a uh, a little bit of it next week, like five minutes of it maybe. Uh, the face will be important to Joan of Arc, so it's 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 sort of historical. Actually, it was a big-budget film back then, but what was interesting, the big controversy was they paid all this money for all these set designs, and then the movie, you don't get to see most of them. So that's kind of fun. I thought it was funny. It's not just Joan of Arc's face, though. It's, it's, all, it's all the other faces. I, I will not... I, listen, uh, for those who came to my movie recommendation four years ago called The Sacrifice... To which you had to sacrifice all notions of how to watch a movie. Uh, this would be in similar veins. It, it does require an openness. An openness to what could be, not what you know. There we go. Anyways, I love it. I mean, I, I actually am enraptured by that movie. Yes? Oh, man. Well, I got plenty of French movies. I don't. I yeah. I have to agree though. This this does. This is an acquired taste. This is like you know your first beer. You know you kind of don't like it right away. Yeah, we might have to have a few wines beforehand. Maybe a pillow too for a lot of people. You have to be thoroughly engaged to watch many of the movies I recommend. This is not like uh, you know. Hey, I'm going to relax. Actually, one of the, the actually, the one movie I think I mentioned this to Holly after we finished watching it. it's It's called like uh, like "totse, totsi, totsi." I don't know if I mentioned it here. It's a South African movie, and by the end it's it's a, it's a, it's a um, Swahili word or not Swahili that's in Kenya Zulu. It's a Zulu word. and uh, by the, after we movie, I felt exhausted watching this movie. I mean you're you're just totally engaged in this movie your emotions go up and down your mind is exhausted your heart's exhausted but at the end of it you don't feel like you don't feel like you wasted your time and you also don't feel like you it wasn't like it wasn't relaxing you really felt like this was like a good two like a good use of my 2 hours like you know you felt constructive this is do I don't know when I grew up I always asked my mom I said mom what should I do and she said do something constructive I always felt like I, I just did something constructive. Okay. Um, St. Uh, Bridget of Sweden was our, our chapter. For those who read it, uh, I, I'm going to just ask a quick question, just a general question. Like, what did you think of this chapter? And if no one read it, that's fine. But for those who did, Mary. You enjoyed it. What, uh, it, it. Two points. What were your favorite two things about it? Um, highs and lows. What was your two highs? She, she, was, she was married. Her, uh, yes. Yep. And then she was in a religious life. Right. Afterwards. Yes. A, a life devoted. It was short. That's right. There was two two periods, right? The married period and the widowed period. And Right, the Mary period involved more than just her home. What did it involve? Well, she, I mean, did, yeah, the Queen. Sort of introduced her to right. And to, and to Swedish culture. Yeah, um, she was kind of her lady-in-waiting uh, to the Queen of Sweden. I didn't know you could do right, a husband and eight children. All eight lived, which is kind of unusual. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Lived through childbearing in, in the early years. But there's good Scandinavian blood up there, that's right. We're hardy people, us Scandinavians. I'm Norwegian, but yeah, no, uh, yeah, the married life is very multifaceted. Obviously, it was, as, as Mary said, she had a great influence on her husband. And not a great influence, but a very profound influence. Radically changed his life. Uh, and then also she had this influence on the wider kingdom of Sweden through the, the court, where she uh, was t- uh, to teach the new queen about, about Christianity, about Swedish culture. Uh, she was a young girl, this queen. The thing is, though, does it, uh, I, I was surprised. I, I had to look up because I wanted to find out what age uh, Bridget was married. Anybody know how old she was? Yes. It wasn't in there though, right? Or did I just miss it? Okay. Yeah, she was 13 when she was married and her husband was only 16 so it wasn't like, you know, there's a big age difference. They were both young. But, um, yeah, that that gives you to show because especially concerning like the widowed life and the married life, she was married for yeah, I mean, a long time. Right. Well, yeah, she was obviously still a young lady when her husband died, but um, it wasn't like she had this short married life and then this long kind of religious life afterwards. Her, she, uh, like the the Pope says, you know, she had very two even distinct periods in her life. All right. So, um, excellent. I, I, to be honest, this this chapter was for me difficult in, in a couple respects. So we'll, we'll talk about that. First of all, though, her, uh, this notion of the domestic church, uh, the Pope raised this thing about the domestic church, and that's actually a phrase that's used in the Roman Catholic Church to really talk about your home as being another place of uh, God's working. So they, they actually label it the domestic church. And we actually here in the Lutheran faith do have that understanding also. It's in the small catechism. The father is the head of the household. She teaches children... You know, the Ten Commandments and Apostles' Creed and, you know, baptism, Lord, you know, all the parts of the small catechism. And so, so you know, uh, Bridget did a, a good job of that. Now, for Bridget, obviously, her husband wasn't quite clear, and I, and I don't know, he was either a pagan or just a, a nominal Christian when she married him. But um obviously she was the leader in the home. And that's important because that's gonna be something that's kind of woven throughout the entire chapter is kind of her spiritual leadership, not not just in respect to, to women, but also to to kind of men. And I use this word spiritual leadership in a generic sense. So but there is a very distinct connection between the altar and the home, and specifically which and it traditionally held as like the the, the hearth, the, the hearth, I should say. Because um, in the Old Testament, th- this is something that was prevalent even in the Old Testament, w- uh, the altar burned continually. And the sacrifices were made in the morning and the evening. But the fire was a continual fire, an everlasting fire. Now the thing is, though, well, back in the old days... Right, the the hearth had to be burning always. It wasn't like they got up every morning and struck a match and they they actually kept the fire going. Over, strangely enough, the Holy Spirit just gave me a revelation just now. Carl Dreyer, the film director for jo- Passion of Joan of Arc, has another movie, fantastic movie of rural life, and actually that actually is. Uh, it's about a parson who is trying to get this, he, he's, it's a, um, a, a Lutheran pastor, who's trying to be a pastor at this congregation, and they have these three candidates. <laughs> um, and they all give this ser- sermons right in a row, three sermons right in a row. Anyways, this guy wins it, but he has to go into this home of the former pastor's wife. She's, a, she's a very elderly. One of his jobs is to keep the the fire going. Anyway, okay, never mind. Uh, I think it's called the uh, the Parson's Wife. Anyway, say hey, I got Carl Dreyer on my brain. So yeah, in Pioneer Days, I mean you don't have to go back too many generations to actually see this happen, even within American culture. But there was a connection between the altar and and the, the hearth at home. In fact, we actually see this in Deuteronomy chapter six, where um we get the, the, the Shema and how we're supposed to hear, oh Israel, the Lord God is one. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. And you should teach this to your children. It should be on your forehead and on your your uh your 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 uh, hands and on your heart. And and in that whole scenario, there actually is the only way that makes sense in, in Israel's life is if there's a connection between the altar and, and the hearth. And what the Pope actually says, though, is that he understands this as the church is a family of God. Your home is where your family lives. So those are uniquely connected. Now, the one thing, though, is, is that here in Bridget's case, the women, or she as a woman was definitely the main spiritual uh, leader for their home. And obviously she had a great influence on her husband, but it seems like from the chapter that she continued to be the, the main leader. And what's interesting is that the Pope actually says, we want to thank all the women for doing this. In my experience as a pastor, this is pretty common, I think, where women are at church more than men. And so I think that's, that's very important for us to kind of understand not as a failure to men, but but as a as a celebration of of, of women. I think Pastor Gainig several weeks ago, you know maybe a month and a half or so ago, he talked about the role of men and women a little bit. How, and so we see some of what he had talked about kind of manifested in this chapter. Is that um, just because someone doesn't fulfill their 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 uh, vocation, their calling, that doesn't mean that that... Uh, okay, so so uh, what's his name? Ulf, uh, Al- right? Ulf. Ulf with, with an F? Yes. Since he didn't necessarily fulfill his calling, that doesn't mean that the, the faith isn't passed on to the children. It's just that now it takes on a very, uh, well, a domesticated... Understanding or a a motherly understanding, and that actually isn't isn't less. It's just simply different, but it's still good. And you see that actually how that finally gets manifested in her calling or how, how she wants to establish an order later on in life. Right? She wants to establish a monastery where there is men and women, but has an abbess, so a woman as a spiritual leader. And, she, and that's based on Mary in the upper room with the twelve disciples, Mary and the twelve twelve apostles around. So, um, so that gets played out throughout her entire life. But the great thing is, is that uh, it doesn't. God still makes provisions when one of the spouses, or if there is no spouse, isn't there fulfilling the calling. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you have a Bible, we could probably turn to it real quick. This chapter is applicable to St. Bridget on on a couple levels. Because this is the chapter that also talks about uh, being a virgin. Chapter 7. We'll just start at verse 12 just in, re- in reference to when we have single mothers in our congregation or we have mothers without their husbands around, um, you know, how, does that, how does that work? How can we pray for them? How can we can encourage them? Uh, verse 12, To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, she consents to live with him, She should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. And this is where 14 14 and following is very important. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you save your wife? So what we have here is something that is encouraging, but also realistic. Where um, the, the believing spouse brings, uh, uh, I don't know if anybody was around for John Kleinig. I, John Kleinig, I don't know when he said this here at St. John, but he did at one of his seminars or sermons, where he talked about how when we pray or when we come to the altar, we aren't by ourselves, but we're bringing those who we're praying for and those who we have relationships with before God, both in prayer and in the altar. So the believing spouse brings the presence of the unbelieving spouse before God in prayer and, and then also at the altar, which then... And God's mercy and and compassion gives the love and support and the encouragement that that spouse needs to endure the, the thing that's kind of off. Um, because, you know, within the marriage union, uh, you know, marrying Christians is very important for us because we share the fundamental... Person that keeps us together, and that's Jesus. When a Christian marries a non-Christian, that union can't be fulfilled or experienced because, because th- there's a gap between the two. However, God in his infinite mercy, which I think is fascinating, I mean, uh, 1 Corinthians 7 seven. And kind of what that all means for our life together really provides hope for the family because uh, you actually bring the presence of the unbeliever to church you bring you bring that person to church in your own body and uh so there's great hope for the power of God, the power of God's word and the power of the testimony, the witness of God's word in the in the believing spouse to then lead the unbelieving spouse to our Lord Jesus. In fact, uh cuz I was interested, I did I did look up in the Roman the catechism of the Roman Catholic Church and they make a special note about this. St. Bridget, obviously, is a Roman Catholic, so I wanted to see kind of what was going on. And they make a special note. They, uh, they say between different Christians, uh, it's difficult, but it simply takes a lot of planning. Let's put it simply. It means you have to talk about, like, how are you going to raise your children? You're going to raise them in, in one faith, a different faith. You have to find the commonalities and celebrate how Christ speaks to each one of that one of the spouses, but there will come points and times where the differences will kind of collide. You know, for Lutherans, you know, it's it's mainly like baptism. I mean, that's the first one. When you if, you have, if a Lutheran marries a Baptist, then you know you're going to have your child you know baptized as baby. But um, but when they they talk about the 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 marriage between a Christian and a non-Christian, First Corinthians, comes up right away. And they say there's great hope, and we always thrust ourselves upon God's mercy. But the reality is, is that there is a fundamental difference, and there will be issues that this marriage has to deal with, and it will be very hard. Which is actually exactly what First Corinthians 7 says. It says, the, the believing spouse brings the holiness of God to the unbelieving spouse. However, you know, the, the last two verses in that section, you, you don't know. Penny. You don't right. Exactly. That's a good way to say it. I mean, it, it's basically... Now, this is also... This is actually what you just said, what's best. That's something that we have to kind of keep in our mind on a lot of things, especially as you read this book, too. You know, it's like... Roman Catholics have a way to do it. Lutherans have a way to do it. And we often see that as a false antithesis again. It's not really about being one's like sinful and one's not sinful, but it's always what's best. That's the greatness of God and in, in His, his, his uh, grace, is that even in our, our kind of choosing wrong, He still can make it work. But it is not what's best. And that's, I think I put that quote on that sheet there. May the Lord's... Uh, let's see here. I think I put that on there. Yeah. May the Lord's Spirit still inspire holiness in Christian spouses today to show the world the beauty of marriage lived in accordance with the gospel values, love, tenderness, reciprocal help, fruitfulness, to begetting and raising children, openness, solidarity to the world and participation in the life of church. That, that's the thing, is that the beauty, the world, the beauty of marriage... When when uh, Christian marriage is is uh, lived as Christ would have us live it, it's a very beautiful, wonderful thing, and it needs to be celebrated. That's what's best. But that's not always the real. That's not always reality. That's something we're always striving towards. And so we, as Christians, um, you know, kind of suffer through our pain. In marriages that don't work or marriages that have been broken but but god 's goodness still overshadows the brokenness of it all, and there 's a way through it um, what 's best is to marry the perfect person and live happily ever after that 's what's best wait wait a second but that's not that's not that's not reality and but the thing is though is that um yeah, uh God still still can change things and make things work, and i know i know i mean I, I just know people how that is I mean where there's tragedy and brokenness, but that was twenty years ago, and now things are different, and whether they've married somebody different or they've reconciled with their old spouse or they're just living uh single they they made it through, and God has now. Uh, you know, they see hope and love and joy in the world where maybe it wasn't before, so. But it's a, uh, well, it's such a huge topic, and it's very difficult to talk about, especially with respect to St. Bridget, who, uh, after they, you know, she goes on this pilgrimage, you know, her and her husband decide to kind of part ways and live lives of celibacy, which Uh, the Pope uses the word conjugal spirituality, which really takes this uh, understanding of, well, again, I had to look this up because this this thing is that, I mean, that's a tough sell, developing a project of living in continence, you know, and virginity, uh, especially after having eight children. You know, we all know, obviously, things... Everything, you know, everything works. I mean, yeah, so, but the, that's the thing, though, is that, like, uh, again, I had to look this up in the Roman Catholic Catechism, is that, you know, renouncing, they actually are renouncing something that's good. And they actually say that in the Catechism, where they people who choose to be virgins are renouncing a good gift of marriage. Now, that, I mean, that's with respect to St. Bridget. But the reality is, is that they also celebrate it as a sign of the present-age... That will pass away. It's an unfolding grace of baptism, and an ardent expectation of Christ's return. However, that that's something where, for St. Bridget, that's that's a choice that's good and celebrated. But for like people who don't want to choose that, you know, it's it's very difficult. So I, again, that's that's a huge struggle for me, just as a pastor. Yeah right, yes, right, prayer, prayer. yeah, and that and that's actually what first that's actually what first Corinthians chapter seven says um and uh and that's apparently what happened because uh Ulf died in a monastery, so he obviously was devoting himself to prayer i uh it's just, it's just hard for me to say i just yeah. It's, it's it's something that's beyond my my horizon of experience and I think I understand it theoretically but not quite practically this is true this is true I'm also a man this is where this is where I think you know I know Saint Bridget is talked about in this chapter, but man talk about that dude he died. Do- which, which very well could be correlated, I thought that myself I would die too. okay, anyways, no, but but the one thing about the Roman Catholic Church about how marriage is they actually say this too, and i got I got this quote here, it aims at a deeply personal unity, a unity that beyond union in one flesh leads to forming one heart and soul, so it's almost beyond the body, which I I don't know. But again, this is outside my knowledge, so I apologize. I'm just raising these issues without real clear answers. So good job, Pastor Nelson. Plenty of questions, no answers. That's right. That's okay. I'm okay with sounding uneducated or unknowing. We learn something every day. <laughs> well, hang in there. And then we all are babies. That's right. We, had, we have, do have a lot to learn. Now, one of the things, though, too, is that I think we could just simply just talk a little bit about how Bridget and the Pope is talking about marriage in general. Like, what's the point of marriage? What's the purpose of marriage? And that's something that's very important for us regardless of if we're married or not, because um, the point of marriage is not any different than those who are unmarried. It's, it's growing in communion with our Lord Jesus, Ephesians chapter 5. So what's the role of Christ's communion uh, in marriage itself? That's the, the, that was the, kind of related to the points of, of earlier, is that when you have Christ inside the marriage, then those two become one in Christ, now the reality is, is, though, is that you don't have to have another partner or you know somebody else to grow in Christ or have communion in Christ. It's just that marriage serves that greater purpose. And one of the great things, too, though, is that you know the role of the the sacrament of the altar, the Eucharist, is is really important within the marriage relationship, but also obviously in outside the marriage uh, relationship is that. Which then goes to I think uh, how we hold our weddings too within the Lutheran Church. I think that's kind of a challenge for us because we often have uh, Lutheran weddings without any Lord's Supper, and that's most of the time. That's because it's not a Lutheran marrying a Lutheran. But it, I think I think there's a good argument if you have two Lutherans getting married, you should have the Lord's Supper because um, again. It's not wrong, or it's definitely not sinful to not have the Eucharist at your wedding. It's just like, what are we communicating here in the actual marriage rite? Yeah, because I think, uh, pull my hymnal here. Within the marriage rite that we have here, you know, we we have this uh, uh, marital address, I think it's called, or matrimony address, In marriage, we see a picture of the community between Christ and his bride, the church. Um, The union of husband and wife in heart, body, and mind is intended by God for the mutual companionship, help, support that each person ought to receive from the other, both in prosperity and adversity. Marriage was also ordained so that man and woman may find delight in one another. Whatever that means. But, um, you know, those... Those things are manifested in the home, but those are also manifested in the liturgical action, the Lord's Supper. So, uh, anyways, food for thought for any kids who might be getting married. When you talk to Pastor Nelson, he'll explore that with them. Jan? I know. Oh, man, 40 years... Oh, yes, right. Right. The Lord Supper together, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, I, th- I, I think, thankfully, uh, things have changed. I, I, but the thing is, though, is that even uh, ten and a half years ago, right, babe? We've been married ten and a half years. You know, it wasn't common, although I technically wasn't a Lutheran at that time. Yeah, I think I think oftentimes is like, well, what about the family? Well, I understand that, but again, I I, I think this is a this is a moment where, especially it, it you know obviously again we're talking about what could be and again if you don't have the Lord's Supper at your wedding, it's okay. It's it's one of those things though that are, what you know kind of what are we witnessing and communicating towards? I didn't have the Lord's Supper at my wedding. My wedding was still awesome. All right, and it's still working. Holy smokes! I know. I still love my wife, I love being married and I uh, love my children. so it works. it's okay. Now um, because yeah, so like for instance, when I got married, I, I wasn't a Lutheran, my most of my family are not Lutheran. and I, it, so we have a complication here. What do we do here with that? And um, I shouldn't I, I wouldn't say that is a primary reason to not have the Lord's Supper though. It gets complicated. However, it's not unsurmountable because I've done it before. Uh, last year, we had two Lutherans, LCMS Lutherans, who got married, and they actually, out of the blue, asked me to have the Lord's Supper. I said, "Well, let's talk about it," and we talked about how uh, you know communion would be handled, and we and, and they said, "You know what? We'll uh, you know you, you can't obviously control everybody who goes to the wedding, but the people who." would be within their family, they talked to about it. And most of the family members said, well, isn't that what your church just does anyways? So they weren't actually necessarily offended. I mean, if they were offended, they had already been offended. It wasn't like you were actually revealing something different. However, what was interesting too, though, was a great opportunity for witness in communicating our faith to them. Because and this, this goes from like a more personal perspective for me, when my first, uh, the road down to Lutheranism for me started in my premarital meeting with Pastor Bruzek. Because Holly, out of the blue, said, well, let's have the Lord's Supper at our wedding. And Pastor Bruzek said, no. Because, <laughs> uh, well, Marcus isn't even a Lutheran. He couldn't even have communion. That'd be kind of weird. You know, he's trying to be a nice guy. Without saying no, we don't. That you know, that's a silly request. So, he, and I was like, well, why can't I have communion? I believe the same thing as you, but you're not Lutheran. And lo and behold, I'm here. That's a, I mean, that's actually a true story. I mean, that's that's it's. It all started from a discussion that one party thought they were the same as Lutherans, and they were. But they just hadn't had the opportunity to communicate. And that, that actually happens with the Wheaton College students every year. Uh, we inevitably have a visitor from Wheaton College who takes communion because they've learned about Lutheranism at school and they think, "Hey, this is this is who I am. I, I'm going to be I'm Lutheran." Now they have the, they haven't officially become Lutheran. They didn't know it. So, like for instance. I'm in conversations with two boys from Wheaton College right now who said, Oh, Pastor, I took communion. I, I didn't but I'm not like Lutheran. And I said, Well, who told you? Well, I don't I just I haven't I I just wasn't raised Lutheran. I said, Well, how do you know you're not Lutheran? And obviously, because I'm speaking from personal perspective, I I so I asked questions. I said, Well, tell me a little bit about yourself. You know, what do you believe about the altar? like well we believe it's the body and blood of Jesus the same body. you know i mean perfect answer good good confirmation answer i said so uh you know you've been coming to church here three weeks in a row like are you you going to other churches and they're like no we really like this place this is we we'll, this is where we're coming i said okay perfect you sound very Lutheran to me so um you know, in, in the discussions with your wider family or other family members, you might find that there might be an opportunity for togetherness. And that's that's a part of the thing. But again, you know your family better than I do. I just raise it. You get you know, the parties say, Oh man, Pastors, that sounds okay, but let's be realistic. It ain't happening. we say, okay. Next, you know, turn to Genesis chapter two. Lindsay. Right. Yes. That's very common, actually. And that's how I started at St. John, how I did premarital counseling. In fact, it was Pastor Geinig. Uh It's, it's interesting, because Pastor Brzezak was probably the most flexible. Uh, that's not the right way to say it. Pastor Brzezak was much more like that, because that's what he did with us. He's like, how do you want it? And we're like, well, you know, we just... I, I've talked to Pastor Brzezak about this, by the way. I'm like... Man, you should have, why didn't you tell me about this kind of stuff? He's like, man, hey, listen, I, you know, I have enough problems. I can't, <laughs> which is absolutely true. I mean, yeah, exactly. Holy smokes. Knowing what I know now, I completely understand what, why you do things. So, and then, and then I, I started raising questions about, like, certain things. And Pastor Gainig did a great job of saying, this is how we do things, uh, and then, you know, but, you know, we don't have to do it this way. You know, it's 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 a thing. So, uh, you know, definitely. Well, I know at St. John it's changed. I mean, we definitely try to raise things and we, but, I mean, you know, marriage is a big business, right? So, you know, you go to the bridal catalogs and all this stuff, and they say this is how you should have your wedding. So oftentimes when we meet with couples, they already have an idea of what weddings should be like, but who is directing them? Business. Which, I mean, that's a whole different other issue that we might want to think about, you know, what directs our lives, money, corporations, or does the church, especially during Advent. Can you imagine a church without, I mean, a Christmas without shopping? Anyways. Hmm. Radical. That's Reverend Billy, by the way. Reverend Billy, whoever I mentioned that to. Oh, yes, the Church of Stop Shopping. Okay, anyways, so, so that's the thing as pastors and churches that we need to be kind of more encouraging of how we, we actually interact with uh, younger couples and really encouraging and supporting them in the unity that they have in Christ and how that manifests even within the, the, the church service itself. But, again, I, I, you know, I'm, I might be shooting for the stars, but I think it's something that we want to talk about with the couples because... Well, first of all, I think it's a lot prettier to have communion because you, you have to have singing, you have to have music it also is helpful for for the couples who want to have these soloists and you know it, there's not really a great spot to have a soloist you, you know we do we kind of do it like after the sermon or during you know be, like after or before the sermon man if you got communion man you can have you can have as many soloists as you want perfect awesome it's just a simple place to have it uh the other aspect too though is that um uh well, congregational singing. I often bring up William and Kate's wedding. I mean, did you guys all watch that? They had congregational singing. Can you believe that? It was a. It was very. It was almost verbatim what our wedding rite is here. I think there was one extra prayer, one different prayer. I know, but it was like, hey, congregational singing. I know. And all they had was trees in there, which I thought was interesting as far as decoration, which was really rad. Yeah. That stuff I don't talk about with the wedding couples. Yes. All right. all right. Anything else about weddings? I think we've probably put weddings to rest here. I don't know. There's, I mean, there's so many other things we can talk about. Yeah, Mary, thank you for waiting, by the way. Yes. <laughs> I think I think mothers still do run it but Yes. Right. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah. Oh, this is Yeah, okay, interesting. In the church, yeah. Well, yeah, uh, well, again, yeah, so we, now we're, we're seeing the complex re- uh, realities of what marriage is. Now, the funny thing is, though, is that, you know, what's, I think what's interesting is, is, you know, from a poetic perspective or symbolic perspective is how the wedding ceremony itself can be reflective of the family itself and how you know i think weddings that are very complicated tend to be from families that are very complicated and i use the word complicated in a broad take it <laughs> i didn't say that it's not every family is dysfunctional but yeah yep and and that's okay so that's the thing though is that we live in a very complicated world so religiously uh, spiritually speaking Faith speaking, we live in a very complicated world. Probably, you know, Jan, when you talk about forty three years ago, the the, the the spiritual landscape was much more distinct. But it's not this day. I mean, it through a variety of society you know, societal reasons, it's it's different now. And we have to be listening more closely to younger people, younger couples, I'm saying married couples. To how you know how we can apply the gospel to their their life as as a husband and wife, because you know roles are very different now these days between husbands and wives, fathers and mothers, um, and that's all part and parcel of just the you know the wedding process too. So, Lindsay. Uh, well, yes and no. I mean, you know, it, there's there's benefits and curses, blessings and curses to, to every kind of age. Uh, I think the benefit for it not being as complicated, or uh, I'm sorry, not being as distinct, is the fact that it gives us much more opportunity uh, to, to speak with people. Because people don't say, oh, hey, you're a Lutheran. you're not like me because I'm Roman Catholic or I'm Methodist. Because people don't, don't quite know what they believe in the first place. So that does provide an opportunity to, to talk. Yeah, uh, but it's a curse though because it's so confusing sometimes in the complexity. So you know, that can be hard to talk to people who think they know something but they don't. Yeah. Nancy. Yeah, this is right. Okay, so arranged. Absolutely arranged. very very young. Yep. Set right. <laughs> That's right, sure yes it yes, that's right that's right, that's exactly right, nancy i mean that that's a very good point uh um, how her deep unity with our Lord really kind of was able to plow through any of those struggles i mean they're they're pretty profound struggles, I mean from our perspective right being arranged having a married marrying someone you don't know uh with a lot of responsibilities yes there is a blessing there, yes that's right that's right they want it to work in a gospel way right I mean yes right yes sure. All right. This is a good. This is a good question. Oh man, you had the whole towns, yeah. What was your maiden name, Jan? How many how many Rommels were in town? Yes. Yeah, Marathon City, outside Wausau, where I grew up. There was Seiberts, Seiberts, and uh, I want to. I, there was another one. I can't remember. I just remember Seibert's and Seibert's because they were so close to each other. But there was like three families in this entire town of whatever, 3,000 people. Uh so when everyone got married, and there was uh one Lutheran church, one Roman Catholic church. On the other, on the other yeah. Point, was... Okay. Oof. Yeah. Related to. Okay. <laughs> All one family. Well, yeah, actually I mean, but Mary Lou, you bring up a very good point that we have to think about. Um, in fact, I think that that actually, so it's related to a wider community. Let's put it kind of general. Normally families in the past have been the wider community. Families now are very, uh, we say this word wrong, nuclear. Did I say that right? Nuclear. <laughs> I say it like George Bush. Um, so so it's you know it's it's this uh it's a smaller thing, and the wider family meets you know maybe once a year twice a year, but that's a kind of unusual too, like having large family reunions where young people actually like want to go to them uh so now now what how, what's the support group? It should be the church, yes, and that's where actually I was going to talk about christian friendship the entire time, but i, I decided not to that's where that's where we are how we how, how do we understand as as friends to a wider community not as like husband and wives but i mean in a wider community to support each individual or person in the church because i'll tell you right now people are finding community in places that aren't the church uh the fact that you have thousands of people that go down to like manhattan and downtown chicago they find community in these these places they find community in different places and it's it's usually community with a purpose which i find interesting i mean this is kind of just a general watch the news kind of impression i haven't done any kind of studies but people are finding community in places that are that have a purpose because their lives don't and they don't have the family network that maybe past generations did So they find them in places made up of all different kinds of people, centered around this thing, whether it be protesting or a, 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 you know, an issue, politics. But that's where the church should really should be able to sit. This is our bread and butter. I mean, that should be our bread and butter. Because you know, the church takes all kinds in. Yeah, she is. The reason why that is is because uh everything she did actually wasn't done until she she was dead, yeah. So everything she like the order that she did, the the um like the building the monastery, she was big on uh you know, she mentioned the popes there were there was a discord in the in the papacy at this time and she strived to bring the pope back to Rome that never happened until after she was dead. So. Now, one of the things, too, is I just briefly mentioned this just because I wasn't sure exactly how much we were going to talk about this stuff, uh, was the two paintings on the bottom. Since it's around Christmas time. We should briefly mention that. Her revelations, you know, the thing that she wrote, uh, was heavily influenced uh, art, uh, most especially the nativity. Well, I shouldn't say that. What I would consider being kind of most unusual. Uh, Most times, you know, we we know the nativity, right? We picture a stable, right? But in reality, you know, Jesus was born in a cave. Uh, And the the picture on the left is an icon from from a long time ago. That's Andrei Rublev. Another great movie that I would recommend. Andrei Tarkovsky, subtitled. But it it has Mother Mary lying down, which I think is actually more realistic. I mean, any mother who's just given birth usually is lying down. Contrasted to the picture on the right, where she's in red, praying, standing upright, looking like she didn't just birth a baby. And this, is just, this isn't just about Holly. I mean, I've seen plenty of mothers after they've given birth in the hospital praying with them. And most of them are lying down, hair disheveled. and So, yeah, so I think the one on the left, even though it's an icon and less kind of realistic, is actually still more truthful than the one on the right. Um, and then uh, you can see baby Jesus maybe behind her there with the animals around him. He's in a little box, which looks like a coffin. coffin. Yeah. yeah, so that there's a theological connection between his birth and death. But yeah, it also could serve as a feed box. But he's born in a cave. Uh, so I think that story is probably more realistic. But St. Bridget's illuminations have Jesus giving off this bright light, baby Jesus. So if you look at Rembrandt, El Greco, uh, this guy, which I forgot to put his name down, it's in the Louvre. It's the famous one. No, it's not. Yeah, but he uses Caravaggio technique. Actually, Caravaggio has a nativity scene too, but it was kind of unfinished, but also uses the same uh, technique. Where, But the reason why I chose this is because um, her revelation has St. Joseph holding a candle. And this picture has St. Joseph holding a candle. And the candle doesn't give any light off because the light of Christ saturates the scene. But this is, a typical, this is a typical image for the nativity of the Lord where Jesus actually gives off light. He's, he's definitely the, illumine, the illuminatory in the, in the painting. And we don't see Mary anymore lying down. We don't see that often. We see her sitting praying. That's, that's from St. Bridget's Revelation also. She's sitting there praying. With uh, the the shepherds, this uh, the one on the right has a midwife, but that's kind of beside the point. and it's usually in a stable, like Saint Bridget's image. so it doesn't have baby Jesus in a cave with Mary lying down and it's also uh, Jesus is in a uh, like a wood structure, not a trough or something that mimics a coffin. Like the old paintings did, old images, I should say. Yes, Donna. Is Mary usually in a certain color? Well, it's usually it's, like blue. Yeah, it's usually blue, but this one's red. This this is a uh, a blood red. So yeah, I would do blue just because that's a traditional Mary color. This is a more theological uh I should say that this the reason why it 's red is because of the blood of jesus it 's a yeah uh yeah anyways that that 's also the reason why it 's red on the the left side too, but we all know that well, never mind, red is a very common colour in birthing today was probably most uncomfortable for me because of the just the yes. The earthiness of marriage and birthing and all that stuff. So, anyways, I, I like that. I mean, I think it's very interesting how we have this saint who has greatly influenced our perspective on the nativity scene, and we don't even know it. This is so much, it's so part of our narrative now that we don't even think about it. But if you're into icons, you, icons always are kind of confusing at first because. It usually fractures. It usually causes a crisis in our mind, thinking, "Well, this isn't how it is," but it is. Icons also do a better job of of, of demonstrating many things at once. G.K. Chesterton, great book called *The Everlasting Man*. He he makes this whole point about how he he tongue in cheek he says, "You know, most evolutionists believe that man was started in a cave." He said ironically, "So was." The second man started in a cave, and he says how art can't can't portray Christmas really well because how do we normally portray heaven, right, above Earth, but at Christmas heaven is below the Earth because it's in its cave. It's below the Earth, and how things are goofy and, anyways, it's it's a great read.